0: Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare.
1: Today we're speaking with Dr. Vanita Agrawala. Previously, a researcher and an operator at tech driven healthcare companies, and currently a physician and venture investor with a focus on biotech and health tech companies. Dr. Agarwala has seen the industry from a variety of angles, giving her a unique perspective as an investor. She pursued her undergrad in biophysics at Stanford and then continued her education to get her MD, PhD at Harvard Medical School at MIT. She has been a data scientist, a management consultant at McKinsey, and a director of product management at Flatiron Health, and she has worked with prominent laboratories across the country. As a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, she works with companies seeking to improve how drug development and patient care delivery is done, and she also continues seeing patients as an adjunct clinical professor in the Division of Primary Care and Population Health at Stanford. Since we're talking to an investor today, it's important that I mention A16Z investments may be slash are discussed in this conversation, but none of the following content should be taken as investment advice.
2: So, thank you so much, Dr. Agarwala, for joining us today. We're so grateful to have you with us and learn more about your dynamic experiences in the healthcare industry that have brought you to where you are today. You've seen the industry from many different perspectives as a physician, as a founder, as a researcher, and now as an investor. Could you tell us about your journey?
3: Well, thanks so much, Suman, for having uh, having me. It's a real pleasure to join the podcast and to be a part of the broader community that you're building. Um, I think it's fantastic that you're growing you know growing this collection of conversations with with women across the industry. I would describe my journey as. As kind of a continuous quest to just be closer and closer to innovation that I thought could help patients. And that might sound sort of obvious and straightforward, but it took, it was it involved to some extent whiplash between a lot of different situations, companies, contexts, roles, and a willingness to kind of jump between industries to make that happen you know, so I, I started in academia, I started with a real focus on on research and thinking about ways in which, you know, the the most basic forms of research could could advance our understanding of, of innovation, I, I then felt like, well, I really need to understand how how the big companies do it and went to McKinsey along the way and learned a lot about how those companies are structured, how they choose to struct, you know, how they choose to um, feed their innovation pipeline, how they build it internally versus look externally for it. You know, went back from there to, uh, for more academia and, and grad school and did my MD, PhD and really focused on, you know, on a specific area within the healthcare research ecosystem and then kind of continued throughout that time to interface with early stage companies, you know, worked at a fast growing health tech startup uh, called Flatiron Health in New York City. Uh, and then ultimately found my way into the venture community. And so I think, you know, all of it has been traced to a desire to kind of be closer to more innovation and be able to contribute to that in a way that I felt like I was best positioned to do at each of those stages in my career. And so I, th- I think, you know, there's never any any major lessons from any one individual story. And I always caution people, to, you know, about sort of overfitting to any individual examples. But um you know, my own personal lesson and learning has sort of been to not be afraid to to move between different fields and different industries and to realize and embrace the fact that what you learn in one setting might actually be really relevant and a superpower in another setting. Um, even though that's kind of like not how our world is designed. And sometimes the world tells you like, stay in one, you know, stay in one zone and get and, and focus there. Um, but I, I think there's often a lot of opportunities to kind of reach across the borders.
2: How did you go about finding mentors and people to lead you, um, into new pursuits? And, um, how do you value being a mentor to others? We'd love to hear about that.
3: So my, my view on mentorship is pretty straightforward, which is, I think the the biggest thing a mentor enables is for you to do more than you've proven you can do before. And so that means, fu- that means looking with you ahead to your future and saying, even though you haven't done X yet, I'm confident that you can do X. And that, that's like, it's pretty, it's pretty simple, but I think it's, it's, those are the mentors who, um who I have found to be most instrumental in my own career. Those are the mentors who I find that I keep in touch with on a longitudinal basis because they continue to look out for those interests on your behalf over a very long period of time. And those are the men. That's the type of mentor that I hope to be too, is to really look at people not based on exactly what they've done, but on what I think they could do and what is achievable. And there's, there can be a delta there. And, you know, with the right support and the right community around you, I think, you know, you can make that jump. And I think mentors can be a huge, huge part of
0: that. So I wanted to transition into talking a little bit more about your overall investing philosophy. And to kick off that discussion, wanted to ask about how your background, your medical experience and scientific training have informed your investing strategy?
3: Yeah. So I was always interested, um, I think, in healthcare, uh, probably most honestly, simply because my mom was in, in medicine. Uh, she's a gynecologist and I kind of watched her training growing up. Um, and actually before that, she had a career in, in drug delivery and basic sciences. And I sort of saw her own her own ambitions evolve, and that was at a time when all of those things were rare for for immigrant women to pursue and so it was, it was a really inspiring example frankly and so I had kind of i think a lot of the ideas as I was um, going through school were were about kind of how can i how can I do something that changes that field and and moves it forward a little bit and I think you know I think as many people who go into medicine have um you know family healthcare experiences sometimes drive that experience home even more poignantly where you realize like, wow, either, you know, this was just an amazing experience and it's kind of a miracle of life that this happened. Um, you know, I think my sister and I actually both happened to be extremely premature babies. We were born at like 28 weeks and, you know, uh, required tons of NICU stay and, um, and it's kind of just like an amazing feat of science that you can keep a a baby alive that's born that early, right? And so that's, I kind of remember vividly, my sister was actually, you know, born when I was a teenager. And so I actually got to see it again, <laughs> play out. And, and I remember thinking, wow, like anything that can contribute to technology that actually, you know, creates such such miraculous outcomes is is valuable. And then on the other side too, people have experiences that are so negative where you're like, how is this possible in 2021? How is it that we have no idea what to do about this condition or with, or or how to help this patient? And so I think I would say it's those same two threads that drew me into medicine in the first place and also kind of guide my lens on investing, which is that sometimes you have to look at what's really working and ask, how can I replicate this in other fields? How can I bring that speed of innovation to other fields? And so for example, the way that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were developed is a great example. There are absolutely more startups today who are thinking through where can RNA therapies be applied? What are the requirements for success in other disease areas? What will it take for me to deliver this RNA to the right you know, destination in the body? you know how can i make the lipid nanoparticle carrier better like these are all questions that are now being asked and to some extent that's inspired by something that worked and then there are equally inspiring you know kind of stories and and observations that you can make on the other end of the spectrum which is you know like holy cow how can it be the case that a patient can't get an appointment to see you know a primary care doctor in this country for months sometimes and how can it be the case that you know, this patient stopped taking their their oral chemotherapy because they couldn't pay for it. And how can, you know, there's all these observations in, in the delivery world and also in the therapeutic world, frankly, where we have patients that we just say we have nothing we can do about this condition that drive innovation sort of from the other spectrum. And both are like really powerful fires, right? That you can sort of, that can light a team up and say, you know, I want to replicate success or I want to create success where none exists that can be really personally and also organizationally motivating.
0: What do you see the value of of academia and entrepreneurs working together? And more specifically, how do you think scientists and those in academia can can take what they're doing in the lab, the, the problem that they're trying to solve and translate that into a company um, that can have a much broader impact.
3: Yeah, so I think I'd maybe call out two paths, right? One is people from academia, scientists, clinicians, you know, um, a whole range of folks can actually become entrepreneurs. And I think that's the trajectory worth discussing. And then the other is what you described, which is, you know, folks from the academic ecosystem can find really meaningful ways of collaborating and, with entrepreneurs or with companies um, to facilitate the transfer of, of technology out into the world. And so, and both are really important, but I think both are actually so different that actually where I see people trip up the most is conflating them and in thinking like, well, you know, maybe I'll... You know, I'll kind of dabble here, or maybe I'll consult with this company, and or maybe I'll kind of, you know, build a portfolio of technologies in my lab and see who wants to to bite at it in different contexts. And oh, there's always a place for everything, and you can always find an example for everything. But by and large, I actually think these two paths are are very different, and they need to. And the decision to pursue one or the other is, you know, is one that has to be pretty purposeful. Uh, my partner VJ Pandey here at Andreessen Horowitz, who founded our bio team and has been a longtime colleague um, and, and mentor to me, actually wrote a fantastic blog post on this that I'd encourage everybody to check out on kind of what it means to take the jump from academia into a startup and, and actually encouraging people to like sort of either put all your eggs in this basket and really go for it, you know, versus finding kind of other, uh, other ways uh, to do it. So, so that's the first decision point in the, in the, in the tree, if you will. And then after that, I think regardless of, of which pathway you're on, i.e., you know, going all into a startup versus figuring out a way to, to get your, your science and technology into an outside startup. I think my biggest advice there would be, you know, to, to have broad conversations early. I think people often think like, oh, I, you know, I, I should keep my ideas pretty close to my chest' because these are my ideas, and you know, and I want to be careful about who I talk to and which investors I talk to, and you know it's it's on us, the investor community, to figure out you know ways to make ourselves you know accessible in a way that's super helpful to people in that position rather than you know uh, you know to elicit sort of some of the skepticism that people might have about about sharing their ideas too early, but you just can't go wrong like nobody can actually run away with your ideas. So you can't go wrong in asking people, you know, how would you think about supporting this? What kind of company structure would you put around this? Who do you think I need to hire on my team? Talk to your tech transfer office. How, who's done this before? What would the terms look like? How do I structure this? Is there important IP I need to file? Like these are all questions and conversations that I would just encourage people to have earlier rather than, than later, regardless of, of how you'd like to, you know, pursue a startup.
0: This question will be helpful for our listeners who, who want to start a biotech company and thinking about, okay, they have, they have their research, they have their idea. Maybe they've talked to their tech transfer office, what have you, but now they're trying to go take that next step. What would you say to, to those women that are trying to take that next, that next step in the company building process?
3: Again, the first decision is, do you want to go full-time You know, with this startup? Uh, I think the equation changes a lot um when a scientific founder says I believe in this so much that I'm actually going to start a company around it maybe that means I have to take a leave from the university maybe that means you know I have to rejigger parts of my life in a pretty substantial way but that's that's a huge signal when that happens and when that happens we certainly pay attention at least you know certainly part of our firm's philosophy is a huge interest in supporting that type of scientific and technical founder who may very well, it may very well be the first time they're doing this. But to my earlier point, you know, we're trying to support people in doing things that they haven't yet proven they can do. And we think that if you build the right support structure around those founders, great companies can exist. Um, so that's the first decision. You know, Do you want to jump into the company? And if not, the most important thing you can do is find somebody who does. Um, so the the worst thing that can happen is you've got an idea You have an idea about how to structure IP licensing, but you don't have, you know, even one person who's kind of willing to work on it full time. And that's just, that's just really important to, to create a real company, right? You need, you need a cohort of people who are living and dying by the idea, who are hiring, who are thinking thoughtfully about what the company's fundraising needs are and, that's probably the the junction at which we see the most struggle is in trying to figure out who is joining the company you know actually full time
0: what are some important qualities or experiences do you value when you're evaluating a management team and and their and their business plan
3: yeah so I actually think that the prior discussion we just had around, you know, looking for people who have expertise, but have also, um, are also kind of really eager to demonstrate a willingness to transfer some of those skills into different fields and spaces and roles is actually a really important early startup founder, um, trait. So, you know, it's actually more concerning when a founder who's super deep on one specific space says, well, like, that's kind of what I do. And that's, that's what I like to focus on. And I'm going to have to hire somebody to do X and Y and Z. And, you know, they're all going to have to be different people. Like that's, that's kind of not how we typically see the most successful startup companies being founded. It's it's often someone with a really technical background and deep specialization who says, yeah, I am going to do this fundraising thing. Like I am going to learn how to pitch this concept and, and figure out what the big vision here is and engage, a, you know, uh, a big group of investors on it and so on and so forth. And yeah, I am gonna figure out how to hire people to work for me, even though I haven't done that before. And I am going to grow, you know, a business development effort inside my org and hire, you know, team members for that too. So I, I look a lot for that versatility and, uh, or at least that kind of desire and ambition um, to, to flex into different roles. That's probably, that's honestly the biggest. And then, you know, I think communication is really important. I think people don't talk about it enough or emphasize it enough. Your ability to communicate your ideas clearly is so important, not only in a fundraising context, but then in a, in the context of you going out and building your business. Right. And so I, I personally index on that quite a bit. I pay attention to how people describe their ideas and their long-term vision and how compelling i think that would be not only to investors in the future but also to you know people that they want to hire
0: so i wanted to hear hear your thoughts on what we should look forward to in in healthcare vc in this year and and in the coming years
3: too much to cover in a in a short podcast so i i do encourage folks to check out um some of the content that, that my team put out around JPM, um, you know, written by a lot of my team members and in, in a package that we called It's Time to Heal that you can find online at the A16Z Andreessen Horowitz um, website. But in there, we make a number of observations that, that we've sort of seen accelerate over the last few months and that we see really continuing uh, going forward. Things like, you know, data outside the EHR becoming Increasingly valuable, and companies finding ways to harness that data, use it, service it to, you know, to potentially enable value-based care arrangements, for example, with with payers and health systems, and and sort of seeing that center of gravity shift a little bit. We talk about a concept that that I call always-on triage, which is you know uh, sort of similar to to the Storedash example, but you know, why is it the case that healthcare is still so episodic? And so even though there have been so many regulatory uh improvements, facilitating video visits and telemedicine and things like that. It's all still mostly stuck in a episodic fee-for-service universe. And, you know, does that really make sense? And is that really changing healthcare? And I'd argue not quite yet, not until we start tracking people continuously, not until we can, you know, kind of put them on trajectories where where they're matched with patients that look like them until we're learning about what happened to the last thousand patients who looked like them, until we're able to actually Communicate with them on a continuous basis about their healthcare, not like, you know, not just the little epic blurb you write at the end of a visit, you know, for patient instructions. Like, that's, that's like my, that's my most, my biggest pet peeve about healthcare the way we do it today is like, we write this one blurb about here's what you're supposed to do between now and the next time I see you, but we never check in. And so I think there's just so much that will change about how we actually use technology in healthcare, not just to, change kind of the rails on which we deliver it, but to like more fundamentally change how we measure it and, and and how we're able to engage the patient on their journey. So there's a lot that we're looking forward to. And thankfully, um, a lot of great founders um, building companies against, against ideas in that world too.
0: How do you think some of the changes that had happened due to COVID-19, do you think they'll have long-term effects on Life sciences innovation and just the biotech and pharma industry in general? I do. I think,
3: <clears throat> all, like many, many sectors, fields have been, these fields have been just fundamentally more virtualized and digitized. There's a limit to how much you can do that. Um, let's say in a biotech company that has to run experiments and in a healthcare services company that has to take care of patients. But there are a lot of ways that I think the world learned that you can do that. Um, one of the examples that you know I give sometimes here is that when the pandemic was just hitting in January, some of the biggest biotech CROs, contract research organizations, you know, they're based in China, and some of them have global operations. And I remember speaking to one who said, you know, we immediately shifted our experiments from. Our Chinese site to our European site. And actually there happened to be a number of, uh, of firms that have operations in Italy specifically. And, you know, and then they like toggled right back <laughs> when, when the pandemic center of gravity shifted and companies, biotech companies, you know, in the U S and all over the world, um, really, I think virtualized and le- and relied and leaned on some of these CRO organizations with kind of global flex capacity in a way that um, they might not have otherwise. And then, of course, they, you know, a whole bunch of processes within the companies, I think, became digitized and modernized as well. Everything from how you onboard a new employee to, you know, to how you um, might facilitate data analysis in a way that doesn't require being physically at the lab, at the bench, at the machine. And so, you know, I I think all these things are actually going to contribute to continued efficiency improvements. uh, that, That kind of stack up to be pretty meaningful across the industry.
0: Looking at the vaccine development specifically, like we, the operation was called warp speed. So everything, you know, was done at an expedited speed. I mean, one could argue the technology was kind of already there. It was just kind of plopping in the, the sequence for, for the spike protein. But what, what do you think are some of the dangers of this quote unquote, like warp speed approach to any sort of innovation or drug development?
3: Uh, you know, I I think warp speed and and components of that were, were really successful. I think it's, there were <clears throat> key decisions to expedite, you know, data review to facilitate, to, to bring resources to bear early in manufacturing, for example, which companies otherwise wouldn't have been able to do without government contracts to purchase large orders of vaccines. And so there were a number of Components of that infrastructure that I think made a lot of sense and are worth thinking about when and in what contexts we should be repeating. I think, you know, of course, this isn't, this isn't new or controversial, but, you know, I think we struggled more with distribution, clearly empirically. And I think a lot of that has to do with our, you know, fragmented healthcare system to some extent, how we do public health governance and how it, you know, how, uh, you know, it's on a county local health department to figure out how to do vaccine distribution versus, you know, versus a more coordinated strategy. And so all of that, you know, could clearly have been better. Um, but I, I don't actually think that was a result of, you know, of expedited innovation. I think that was just a reflection of inadequate public health infrastructure and, um, you know, something that I'm, I, I hope we really continue to build and invest in going forward. I, I think one thing to think about is like, you know, if you put yourself in the lens of specific patients, sometimes that gives you a slightly different perspective on things. And so, you know, I'll give you an example. I saw a patient yesterday who, you know, is status post to bone marrow transplants and had a really good question, which is like, should I be getting the COVID vaccine? You know, will my immune response even happen? Like I already have really low immunoglobulin levels. Is this Is this something my body can or should handle? And, you know, I think the answer is we don't know. Like, there's not really, we don't have good data on that or or good speculation on that yet. And so I think one kind of, I think, you know, one perspective we should always keep in mind when we accelerate innovation is, you know, is kind of who might be getting left out? Who are we not including in the trial? Who are we not thinking about? um, Which, you know, sometimes you have to make trade-offs in the interest of the greater good, but I think then, you know, making sure you're going back and asking those questions and, you know, thinking through, well, who's going to design vaccine guidelines for for these rare populations who are currently at home really fretting about what they should be doing. You know, that matters, that's important. And so I hope our I hope improved data infrastructure and capture of EHR data for for these patients who do, you know, do go on to get vaccinated and those who don't can actually help us like figure out what the right answer is, but you know, you have to kind of invest on behalf of of all patient groups, if you will, over time.
2: You're in a very unique position as a healthcare investor, being able to fund startups who, you know, arguably might be tackling issues surrounding health equity. How do you view the role of the venture capital industry in mitigating healthcare disparities?
3: You know, I think our role is uh, is to be driven by merit and impact. And, um, you know, I think if we're, wherever we find that we're not um, driven by people's fundamental ability to have an impact in a big, broad, diverse way, and if we're not supporting that, then, you know, we're going to shortchange the whole community if, you know, if we overlook opportunities to fund and support uh, the biggest forms of impact that people want to have. And so, you know, I'm, I'm proud that our own team at Andreessen Horowitz is, is a naturally diverse team. We happen to be 50, 50 on, on men and women. And I think that's, that's unusual. And that's, um, it, it makes for a really phenomenal work environment for me personally, and something that I feel. I feel proud of. And, you know, we are always looking to back the very best ideas and the strongest teams. And I think that includes teams that are diverse and also looking to solve really diverse problems on behalf of really diverse patients. And so I think, you know, just kind of maniacally following through on that, I hope will help us keep our aperture.
2: One last question that we'd like to ask you, uh, what is one key piece of advice or quote you live by that you'd like to share with our uh, listeners who are aspiring entrepreneurs, hopeful to really make their impact in the biotech or pharmaceutical space in the future?
3: You know, actually, I'll give you one that I that resonated with me just from, from the inauguration, which is that uh, I think Joe Biden, you know, the president said to his cabinet appointees, that, you know, what he values most is how we interact with each other. And he said, if I hear you disrespect or talk down to another colleague, I promise you, I will fire you on the spot. And I found that to just be, you know, just a really important reminder, especially in healthcare and in the biopharma space, like we're all in it for the same reason, which is to help patients. And so I just think, you know, don't lose sight of that. Remember that in all of your micro interactions that you have with people, with patients, with colleagues and, um, you know, live in a, in a world in a way and create a culture where you feel that, that if you, that if there was disrespect and that if you had the power to, to ameliorate it, that would be the first thing you would do is to not tolerate any disrespect between people working on the same team for the same cause. So you know, I think our, our business is just all about people. So keep that in mind.
1: Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at Thea HC, and on our website at theahc.org for more content and to join our vibrant community of young professionals, entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders in healthcare. Special thanks to our amazing audio editors, Ellie Park, Asim Jane, Nikita Gupta, and Katie Donaghy. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting our podcast by donating at anchor.fm slash thea-hc slash support.